0: Uh, if you have a Bible or would like to reach into the uh, cubbyhole in front of you and pull one out, we are going to read this morning from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1, uh, just two verses this morning, verses 14 and 15. It's on page 836 in the Bible in front of you, if you want to grab that. Uh, if if you had something really, really, really important to uh, to say, something really important to announce. If you, had, if you had life-changing words that were going to set the stage for uh, essentially for everything that you were going to teach, you know, following those words that you announced, you'd be pretty careful, I think, wouldn't you, in the beginning words that you chose to announce your message. Because in Mark 1, 14 and 15, what we have are the first publicly recorded words of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark. In other words, what Jesus is doing here is he is announcing his intentions. He is announcing the, uh, the broad overview of the content of his message, of his preaching, of his teaching. But more than that, of his entire Mission. So if you want to know what Jesus is all about, what Jesus is doing, it's no secret. He announces it here in these two verses in Gospel of Mark, chapter 1. So let me read now from Mark 1, verses 14 and 15. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the Gospel of God and saying, The time was fulfilled. And the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you did come. Uh, You did come proclaiming the gospel of God. In you is the kingdom of God. And I pray tonight, Father, as we consider these words of yours, O Jesus, that they would impact our hearts that they would impact our very lives. We ask this in your most holy name. Amen. Have you ever considered the impact that uh, parents or other people that are in uh arenas of authority have over children. Think about coaches for a second. I grew up playing a ton of sports when I was younger. I played pretty much everything there was to play. And I had good coaches and I had bad coaches. You know, good coaches can take uh, a team full of average players and cause them to overachieve by the way that he or she, you know, manages that group of people. But on the flip side of that, a, a poor coach can take a lot of talent and can lead them to underachieve. A good coach can take a child, a young child who might be new at a particular sport, maybe a little bit wary about it, and give them the experience in a season that would cause him or her to want to continue playing and want that person to continue experiencing that sport. Uh, on the other side, a, a poor coach can take a child and can essentially crush them to where they, you know, don't want to ever do this anymore, or maybe not any sport anymore. Uh, which is kind of epidemic, by the way, in our society where children just quit early. Earlier for a variety of different reasons, and maybe this is one of them. I remember um, several years ago, I read a biography of the early life of Theodore Roosevelt And it was interesting to me because a lot of the early part of that book was dedicated to the relationship that Theodore Roosevelt had as a young child with his father. And it struck me as a little bit strange because you don't really picture a 19th century father investing in their children in the way that that story portrayed Roosevelt's father investing in him and also into his other siblings. Theodore Roosevelt was actually very physically frail as a young child. He suffered with severe asthma. He was not very active. He was laid up in bed. He was laid up in the house for long, long periods of time. And it's interesting because that's not how you normally would uh, you know, see him portrayed as an adult. In fact, as an adult, he was completely different. He was full of vigor, very physical, um, you know, just very outdoors. You know, He founded a lot of our national parks. That's the image that you have of Theodore Roosevelt. But as a child, he was sick all the time and his father patiently cared for him in those illnesses but also invested in him so that he would move beyond those illnesses and beyond that sickness and grow and become stronger. To such an extent, I also found this interesting, that they lived in a townhouse in New York City. And Theodore Roosevelt's father bought gym equipment, you know, in the, eight, in the 19th century, like the late 1800s, he essentially built a garage gym for his son in the 19th century in a townhouse in New York City so he could work out. And, and Theodore Roosevelt spent many hours in there, you know, getting strong and lifting weights, and, and then he would, you know, walk and run, and, and he grew to be the man that he was. But he deeply loved and adored his father, so much so... That when he died, and he died young, when Roosevelt was in college at Harvard, that Theodore Roosevelt expressed it not only as the loss of his father, but as the loss of the greatest man that he ever knew. Now, every time I read stuff like that, the first thing that happens to me is I feel intense parental guilt you know, at my, at my, at my own parenting. But then generally I move beyond that because it reminds me That being in the presence of a person in authority who uses that power that they have and uses that authority that they have to cause another person to thrive, not to crush another person, but but to lift another person up to cause that other person to thrive really points us in a lot of ways to the work of, of Jesus who is the authority over all things the king over all things it is what it means essentially to be governed by and ruled by Jesus this is the invitation that Jesus offers you in These two verses that we just read in Mark chapter 1, he's offering you an invitation to enter into his rule, to enter into his reign, to enter into a life of being governed and led by him. He's inviting you to stop the futility of running after a life that never offers you any rest, that never offers you any hope, uh, and to confine your hope and your life and your purpose and your salvation in him. This is what we see in verses 14 and 15 when Jesus begins his public ministry. Contextually here, Jesus has been announced by Mark as the son of God. This has been demonstrated in his baptism. When God the Father peels open heaven, the Holy Spirit descends upon Jesus and God the Father makes the announcement, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And it's a Trinitarian moment. All of the persons in the Godhead working together to begin the ministry of redemption that Jesus carries forth from that point on. And immediately the Spirit of God the Holy Spirit compels Jesus into the wilderness where he is tempted by Satan for 40 days. And after experiencing that temptation and not giving into it, not giving in to Satan's temptation for him to abandon his mission of redemption and to seek glory for himself, Jesus returns to Galilee, which is essentially the region of his hometown, and he begins to preach. And what, what he begins to preach involves two pronouncements, two proclamations, and two calls. And the calls are based upon the proclamations. And that's what we're going to look at this evening. So first, life in Christ is based on two proclamations. So we see them both in verse 15. The time is fulfilled. That's a proclamation. That's the first one. The second one is this. The kingdom of God is at hand. That's proclamation number two. Now on these two statements rests the entirety of the life and the ministry of Jesus going forward. So what does it mean when Jesus says that the time is fulfilled? Well, for the time to be fulfilled means that something you have been eagerly awaiting, something you've been waiting for, something you have been longing for, has arrived. It has come to fruition. You are no longer waiting. It has come to pass. Um, I, I think about my children when I think about a time being fulfilled. For When my children were little, we were living in Houston. Both my parents and Shannon's parents, my wife's parents, lived in Mississippi. They lived in different towns, but they were both about seven and a half hours away from Houston. So we didn't see them all the time. And when they were one of the sets of grandparents was gonna come from Mississippi to Houston, it was a big deal. It was exciting for our children. And so on the day that they knew that they were coming, my children would take up residence on the sofa that we had in front of a picture window in our front room of our house and it looked out at the street and they would just sit there on their knees and they would kneel on it. They would put their elbows, you know, on the back of the sofa and, and they were never this still or ever this quiet ever. We should have told them all the time that like the grandparents were coming. I never thought about that. But, but they would just sit there and they would stare at the street. Cars would pass, but the cars wouldn't stop. And they would stare at the street until finally a car came down the street and it did not keep going. It stopped in front of our house and the door to the car opened. And two people got out that they recognized, that they knew. They walked up the sidewalk. They rang the doorbell. We opened the door and the time is fulfilled. What they had been longing for, what they had been waiting for, what they had been hoping for, arrived, and they were no longer waiting. So when Jesus says those words, and he applies those words to himself, what is that time that has been fulfilled? What's the big deal? Well, the people that originally heard these words would have been aghast at these words. They would have gasped. They would have audibly gone, Whoa! Whoa! really? Or I can't believe this or you're lying or something because this would point that person back all the way to the beginning of the Bible. Genesis chapter 3 when God said that he himself would come And that he himself would set to rights everything that is wrong, everything that is broken, because of sin and rebellion that is in the world, that God would fix it. That is what all of the people of God had been waiting for all of those years. And it was a lot of years, thousands of years waiting. And Jesus says, that time is fulfilled. I'm here. I'm the fulfillment of that promise and I'm here. Now how could he possibly fulfill that promise? Well that leads us to the second pronouncement that Jesus makes and that is this. The kingdom of God is at hand. Now if you were to take a poll in Houston if I were to take a clipboard and I was going to go to the gallery or something like that and stand you know, somewhere central and people would walk by and I would ask them a question like, what did Jesus do? What, what did Jesus come to do? You'd get a ton of answers. A lot of people would say, well... Jesus was a good man and he came to show us how to live a good life. He came to teach us how to be good people. But even people that believe something different about him, maybe people that had some experience in church or, or were Christians, they might lump their answers into one broad category like this. Jesus came to save me from my sins. Jesus came to save me from my sins. Now, the good news is that that is absolutely true. Jesus did come to save you from your sins, but it is not the whole truth. It's true, but it's not the entirety of the truth. Jesus announces a much more full-orbed ministry and a much more full-orbed purpose when he comes onto the scene preaching. The kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is the rule and the reign of God over everything, not just individual people, but over all things, over the earth, over the universe, over everything that has been affected and afflicted by sin. That is the kingdom of God. As Jesus famously taught us to pray, that things on this earth would be as they are in heaven. So if you take if you take manifestations of heaven the way things are and you bring them onto this earth because Jesus is here, that is the presence of the kingdom of God. I say that because if we think about the mission of Jesus as bringing the marks of heaven, the traits of heaven, onto this earth, we'll have a much more full-orbed sense about what he is accomplishing and how he is using his followers to accomplish this. Because I say this because this is a place where people who are Christians get in unnecessary arguments. And start to distrust each other when they shouldn't. Because what, what, what people um, tend to do on this particular subject. Is they tend to take one aspect of Jesus' whole orbed ministry. And make that the full uh, the fullness of Jesus' ministry. And, and, and then people start talking past each other because there are, are two ways that you can think of this. There are some people that believe that the kingdom of God is 100% wholly and solely comprised of a person's individual salvation. An individual's relationship with God that comprises the entirety of what Jesus meant when he came pronouncing the kingdom of God. So what that would mean is that the only thing that God cares about, the only thing that God cares about, and so the only thing that followers of Jesus should care about is individual salvation. So other things that the Bible talks about, people could say become a distraction from pronouncing the kingdom of God. Things like caring for the poor or exhibiting justice for those who are suffering and oppressed, adopting orphans, taking care of widows, those kinds of things in that scenario are seen as a distraction to the gospel. But you see, the flip side of that is also true. There are those who express the kingdom of God as being comprised only and solely as ministries of mercy, or justice, or care in social arenas. So that person would say that the only thing that God cares about, is that the poor are cared for and that justice is executed and that means that the kingdom of God is present. So in that scenario, individual salvation is marginalized and is seen as a distraction to the gospel. And so, so evangelism, coming to an individual person and telling them that they are dead in their sins apart from Christ and that their only hope for life and salvation is to embrace Jesus is seen as a distraction from the mission of God. But here's the thing. It's not an either or. It's actually a both and. And that's the beauty of the pronouncement of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God involves both. You enter into the rule and the reign. You enter into God's kingdom through faith in the king. Faith in the Lord Jesus Christ alone. And when you have come under the rule and the reign of Jesus, bringing the marks of heaven with you onto this earth, wherever it is that you go, whatever it is that you do, is part of what it means for you to be an ambassador of the kingdom of God. So you can think about that with respect to your own life. Here's an example. In heaven, in heaven... People from every tribe and every nation and every language under heaven are going to be gathered around the throne of God where Jesus sits and they will be worshipping him and they will be worshipping him in pure and unfettered and perfect relationship with each other. That's what is true in heaven. So if that is true in heaven, what does that mean? How does one who is under the lordship of Jesus manifest that on this earth? What does it mean for the presence of the King of kingdom of God on earth right now? Well, one thing it means is that racism is actually a work of the devil. If that's true in heaven, the opposite is true in hell. It's a work of the devil. And followers of Jesus should not tolerate it and should be the first to work to eradicate it from our relationships and from 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 all of the things that we are involved in that's part of what it means to bring the marks of heaven onto this earth so you could ask yourself this question in a lot of arenas of your life what is true in heaven about poverty what is true in heaven about loneliness and isolation what is true in heaven about uh, about grief? What is true in heaven about the created order, about the creation itself? These kinds of questions inform followers of Jesus on how to live as ambassadors of the kingdom of God under the rule and the reign of Christ. So those are the two proclamations. The time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, and that leads us, it it propels us into the two calls. The two calls in verse 15 are based upon the two proclamations, and they are these. First, repent. Second, believe in the gospel. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Therefore, because these things are true, Jesus is saying, repent and believe in the gospel. Now, to repent actually means in in, in grammatical terms it means that you stop going down the path that you are going down and you turn around and you go the other way you're lost you're going deep into the woods you stop you turn around and you go the other direction that is what it means to repent Now the original people that heard this word out of the mouth of Jesus would recognize this. They would recognize this call to repentance as the call of a prophet because they would know their Bibles, their Bibles is what we would now call the old testament and it was full of prophets calling for repentance it was full of prophets saying hey people of god you are going down a wrong path you are going down a path that leads to death and not to life you are worshiping other gods you are creating idols of 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 silver and of gold and of wood and you are worshiping those instead of me you are neglecting the poor you are not caring for the widow and the orphan you are you are not shining the light of of, of me to the nations that surround you you are looking like all of the other nations that surround you stop it that's kind of what it means repent turn around come back to me if you come to me I will receive you the Lord is slow to anger abounding in steadfast love he will not repay you according to what your sins deserve repent and return but here is the key question why does god receive those who repent why does he embrace you is he rewarding you for something that you have done is he saying to you good decision good job that was a smart call on your part and because you made a smart call i'm now going to receive you into my family no That's where the second call comes in. Repent and believe in the gospel. The gospel means good, life-changing, life-transforming news. People in the ancient world did not use the word gospel just for any old good news. Hey, good news, I found a quarter. That's not gospel. Gospel is, hey, really good news. Your army just won the battle. And do you know what that means? It means that the other army is not going to come to our town and burn it to the ground and kill all of you and take some of us as slaves. That's what the word gospel was reserved for. Life transforming, life changing, life altering good news. Now think about this one aspect of what the gospel is news that's the key that is the key to everything actually in this in this uh in this call to jesus the gospel is news the fact that the gospel is news is the very thing that separates following jesus or christianity from any other major religion in the world i i think about this for just a second. And I don't want to be overly simplistic. There's about a million more things I could say about this. I'm not trying to build straw men. So let me just give you a brief overview. And, and, And I'll say this as charitably as I can because there's way more to be said. But at the end of the day, other world religions, generally speaking, provide counsel in the sense that they tell you what to do. The other world religions give you counsel. Here's what you need to do, okay? So Islam tells you that there is a God, and that God is uh, is fairly demanding. And if you want to have a relationship with that God, there is a pathway to that through what you do. Five pillars, the five pillars of Islam. Uh, uh, If you observe those, and you observe those carefully, and you observe those faithfully, then you will be accepted. Buddhism has a life of working to escape the inevitable suffering of life in this physical world. So it's counsel on what you need to do to escape the suffering of this life and receive spiritual bliss. Hinduism has karma, the principle of cause and effect that 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 ultimately governs your ultimate destiny. In a sense, all of these are actually counsel. It is counsel on how to live your life so that at the end you earn something. You get something for what you have done. Whether it is acceptance by God or whether it is escape from suffering, reincarnation, whatever it is. But it is not news. And that is what makes all the difference News is statement of truth that relates to the work of someone else that is freely applied to you. The good news of the gospel is really not about you. It's for you, you get it, but it's not about you. The news is about somebody else. The news is this, Christ has died Christ is risen, Christ will come again. Embrace that and you will live. You will have life in him. The gospel is not about what you have to do to earn a relationship with God. The gospel is about what has been done by someone else, Jesus the son of God in history and you receive all of the benefits of that simply by placing your faith and your trust in him. This is news that sets you free. I remember uh, one time our family had a long road trip. We were going to Florida and we were listening on audible or probably on a CD at this point, to, to the book Unbroken, uh, which I subsequently then read, and then I subsequently saw the movie. Uh, Unbroken is the, the, the true story of Louis Zamperini. If you haven't read it or seen it, I highly recommend it. It's a great story, uh, and, and there's, it's, it's almost unbelievable, actually. Uh, but there's a lot of corroborating evidence uh, that, that this is actually true, like the resurrection. Uh, so you can trust Unbroken, and you can trust the resurrection. But the, the, the story is about Louis Zamperini. He was a great track star in the Los Angeles air, uh, area a, a, until World War II broke out. And he served uh, f- on, a, on a bomber, and, and on a crew, on a bomber. And these things were notoriously unsafe even if you weren't getting shot at. They just had a tendency to malfunction. And the one that he was on malfunctioned at the worst possible time, which was over the Pacific Ocean while they were on a search and rescue mission. And so his bomber crashed into the ocean. Only three of the crew uh, escaped with their lives. And they spent days and then weeks and then actually months floating on a life raft in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. One of them actually dies. There are only two left until they were spotted by a boat. And you would think that being spotted by a boat would be really great news because somebody was coming to rescue you. The problem was that the boat that they were spotted by was occupied by the enemy we were at war with the Japanese in World War II and they picked them up and so if you could think possibly of going from the situation into a worse situation from being floating in a raft in the middle of the Pacific Ocean without any food they actually went to a worse situation which was a, a prison camp uh, that was run by the Japanese. And they were imprisoned. And they could do nothing about their plight. They were tortured. Uh, they were mistreated. There uh, they, they were barbed wires. And there was, you know, it, 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 was, it was a horrible situation. They all believed that inevitably they were all going to die in that place, essentially. Until they received news. The news was this. The army that was fighting on your behalf has won. You are going to be freed from this place. Now here, think about this for a second. They didn't they were in jail. They were behind bars, they were imprisoned. They did not actively contribute to the final victory of the allies over the Japanese. Yet, that victory was fully applied to them and it allowed them to be set free from their bondage. That is the good news of the gospel. The gospel tells you that you are dead in your sins. You can do absolutely nothing about that. You cannot free yourself from that bondage no matter what it is that you try to do. But there is one who fought the battle for you, and he won that battle. Jesus, the Son of God, won that battle on the cross, and his victory is applied to you, and you are set free. So when Jesus says repent, he means stop what you are doing. Stop doing what you're trying to do to find life or to, you know, and turn around and look at me and believe in the gospel. And therefore have life. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for what you have done on our behalf. We pray that we would, even tonight for some of us, for the very first time, come to that place of stopping the path that we are going down, to turn around and simply to gaze at you, to put our faith and our trust in you. And for those of us here who have already done that, we pray that we would lean into a life of leaning into you and your work and, a sta- a- a- and manifesting the, the marks of heaven on this earth because you are with us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.